passage we're going to look at is Acts 1, 1 through 11. If you'll turn with me there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you or alongside you, and the actual page number is listed in the bulletin. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Listen here to God's word. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of, out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Amen. Our second passage is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 10. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Listen here to God's word. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our, God, of our Lord to be salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And then our primary text is found in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Listen here to God's word. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Amen. At this time, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and silently meditate upon God's word that we've read this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that inspired the writers of this, your written word, so that we could know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And we come to worship you and to praise you for so great a revelation of yourself and for so great a work of grace and salvation through Christ our Lord. We ask that just as Eli actually uh, told Samuel long ago, that when the Lord speaks to him, may we, as he said, your servant is listening. May we hear today from you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Life-changing events in life are always memorable. Just recently, my wife and I were away for a couple weeks on vacation, and we had the privilege of being able to go to see our family members who are spread across the eastern seaboard in areas of Florida as well as in North Carolina before we returned home. It was indeed a life-changing event for both of us because neither of us knew how we were going to fare on such a long trip. Joy with her back condition, me with still recovering from surgery and her surgery as well. We saw this as indeed a life-changing event and it was memorable, especially on the return trip as we crossed uh, into Baltimore and Maryland, it seemed like the road had buckled every so often. And every bump on, uh, that we went over in our vehicle, we felt, uh, and it, it, it actually hurt my wife, uh, each subsequent bump that we went over. And it's also true that often in our times of going through these life-changing events, that we re-examine what we've done. And we surely, since we've been back, have been re-examining this trip. And we decided that we don't want to do it in the near future. 
But in all seriousness, life-changing events do in fact cause us to re-examine our lives. Uh, what we, have, we may have done in the past, or what we are actually doing now, or maybe what we're looking forward to do in hopes in the future. It's these momentous events, these special occasions of life, that we find can be both positive as well as negative. They can elevate us, as this trip did, beyond our highest expectations of joy when we get to see our grandchildren in North Carolina. What a joy it was to see how well they were doing and how much they have grown. They can also, Lord, however, uh, be those types of things and events that demoralize us that drive us to our knees, to lowest points of even human despair and defeat. Some of you are going through these life-changing events right now. I saw a list as I came back to church of all of our graduates that are graduating from high school and college. You thought you had it hard then. Just wait. It is a very positive time, is it not though? As parents, as students, to complete those tasks and graduate, whether it be from high school or college or post-college. There have been engagements of marriage. Some of you had just recently received a clean bill of health. Others of you are looking forward after graduation of landing that dream job. But the other side, the reverse side of this, the opposite of that, is that in life, life-changing moments can bring demotion. There have been a great amount of divorce in the church. There has also been reports of people dealing with terminal disease. Others have lost their job. Life-changing events can be both positive as well as negative. But what if the life-changing event is the event that brought you to faith in Christ? What if, being a Jew, you come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, when the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter, he's dealing with Jewish Christians in the first century. And what did that mean for those Jewish Christians having this life-changing event of faith in Christ? In the first century, it meant rejection. It meant persecution. It meant imprisonment. And it could possibly mean death. And for these Jewish Christians in the first century, they were facing all of these conditions because of their life-changing event of coming to know Christ. What to do? Well, the writer of Hebrews was saying, indeed, that 
and actually perceive that they may have been wanting to walk away from their faith. That they wanted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism. As Pastor John had alluded to earlier, today we are gathered to worship God in what is known as Ascension Day Sunday. It is also a life-changing historical event that is positive indeed. It is one of the high points of Christ's church. Ascension Day actually occurred 40 days after Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. That was one of the reasons why we looked at Acts chapter 1. Because in Acts chapter 1, in verse 3, we read, In these, to these, he says, he, Jesus, also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. All of this occurred prior to Ascension Day. And all three of these scriptures that we have read give us differing, if you will, vantage points from Jesus' ascension into heaven. What happened prior to it? What happens soon after? And what will happen hereafter? As I inferred earlier, Jesus Christ's life-changing event in our lives can be either positive or negative. And we'll see from these three texts that Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven ought to cause all of us to pause and to re-examine our lives in the light of it. What have we been doing in light of it in our past? What are we doing now? And what do we hope for our future? It is important to note that in these views of Jesus' ascension, God gives us his final word, word, if you will, on our past, our present, and our future. For in Hebrews chapter 1, as we read there, one of the things that the writer of the Hebrews is trying to do is encourage these believers who have had their lives changed dramatically by the saving work of God's grace and are now facing persecution. And he wants them to understand that they should not go back to the old faith. They should not go back to Judaism, for Jesus is the fulfiller of everything that God has revealed in the past. In fact, he makes it very clear in his opening statements here. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. You see, the prophets of God were given the task of being God's spokesman on earth. They received God's revelation, his message, and then they proclaimed it and actually wrote it for us many places of Scripture. 
at, to a prescribed audience that God had designed. And in verse 2, we see that indeed in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. In other words, superior to all that has gone before through the prophets in regard to God revealing, he now gives his supreme revelation through his Son. He is the supreme revelation of God. One commentator says about this particular verse, God has revealed himself through his Son, and his Son reveals God to man. In these last days, the climax, the culmination of all of God's re revelation is found completely in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why not? Because Jesus is God's one, unique, and eternal Son, whom the Father, he says, appointed him as heir of all things, through whom all also he made the world. These truths that are given to us here in this verse about the Son of God, who is the fullness of God's revelation to man, as heir of all things, and through, as the one through whom the whole world was created, is supported by Psalm 2, a prophetic psalm. And in verse 8, the psalmist says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Even the apostles, Peter and John, after they were under trial and then released in Acts chapter 4, they quote from this same psalm, verses 1 and 2, and they claim that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. Also, this truth lines up with the beginning of God's revelation in Genesis 1 and 2 of John and how John in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 and verse 14 shows us that indeed the Word who was with God and was God was the same one through whom all things were created that were made and that he became flesh and that he dwelled among us and the writer John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, if these Hebrew believers that are under such pressure and, and such persecution and are questioning whether or not to go on and whether or not to abandon their faith and, and return to Judaism, how much do they need to know that it is this last revelation in the person of Jesus Christ that they need to hold on to? Even the Lord Jesus declares, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But the writer goes on in verse 3, and he shows us that he is the radiance of his glory. 
The radiance there can also be translated brightness or outshining, but it's not reflection. Two heavenly bodies that we see in the sky today, the sun and the moon, can be a great illustration of the difference between radiance and reflection. The, the, if you will, the rays of the sun radiate their beams of sunlight from its own source, whereas the moon only reflects the light being emitted from the sun. When we read this passage and see that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, it means that the Christ is the very essence of God's glory. He emanates the essential character qualities that are unique to God alone. His divine essence, his majesty, his beauty, his holiness, his goodness, his sovereignty. This is all in his Son who radiates his glory. Yes, radiance here captures the true meaning of what Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God who radiates God's glory. And just as John says there in verse 14, we behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying, indeed, Jesus is God. And this is even further reinforced in verse 3 when he says, and he is the exact representation of his nature. The word there, the Greek word being used there, is the word from which we get character. The Greek meaning of that word gives the idea of a tool of, for engraving, or the engraver himself. In this context, it speaks of Jesus Christ in relation to God the Father as the exact imprint, the perfect impress of God's nature and essence. When Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father in John chapter 14, verse 9 and 10, Jesus answers this way, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? John, when he's speaking of Jesus being the good shepherd, he quotes Jesus' own words where he says, I and my Father are one. Unless his readers and us lose sight of the glorious picture and, and attributes that he is giving to the Lord Christ here, he goes on and he says, This God's Son upholds all things by the word of his power. This upholding of all things 
is by his powerful word. It signifies that God spoke into, as God spoke into existence all of creation, he now sustains all of creation by and through his powerful word. He controls creation throughout all of its developments and movements and carries all of creation forward to his appointed end. How can this help someone who's going through the trials of their faith and being persecuted because of their faith? Well, it shows them that the sovereign Lord, who is the ultimate, the supreme revelation of God, is holding all things together. He is all-powerful. If you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17... The, uh, the Apostle Paul summarizes this great thought where he says here in verse 15, and he is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Finally, at the end of verse 3, he tells how this great revelation of God has become man, the Son of God, incarnate. What he came and accomplished for us as sinners. For we read, when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things that you can see not only in this verse, but also in the subsequent verse in verse 4, is that all of these clauses are in the past tense. God the Son who came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ as the God-man. Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life and then died that sacrificial death for sins of sinners like us. Who provided a complete and full atonement for our sins. Who then rose again from the dead to grant us salvation for all who repent and turn to him. Yes, he made purifications for sin. This word purification is used in other places to mean, if you will, the ceremonial cleaning of the body with water, as in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and then John 2, 6. But it also is used here and in other places as the cleansing of of one's soul from sin. Being in the past tense here, it speaks of Christ's completed work of redemption for us. It is this completed work 
that indeed even Luke in Acts chapter 1 gives us proof positive evidence that he has accomplished fully because he's been triumphantly raised from the dead. In fact, in verses 3 through 5, as we read, he presents himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for over a period of 40 days, speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said that they heard it from him. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's these accounts of the Son of God becoming truly man, of his self-sacrificing death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be saved, his glorious resurrection from the grave, and his appearance over a period of 40 days. This all happened prior to Ascension Day. It's not until this is all accomplished that Jesus is able, as it says there in verse 3 near the end of the verse, that he was able to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Lord Jesus Christ, he completed the plan of redemption for us. He provides us eternal salvation if we put our faith and trust in him. He has now gloriously ascended into heaven. He's exalted at his Father's own right hand. He is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Savior and Lord of all. And that's why, as the writer of the Hebrews says, He's inherited a more excellent name than even the angels. What does that mean to them who are going through this persecution and suffering for their faith? And more importantly, what does it mean to us that Jesus ascended into heaven? What does it mean for us now Well, I think we need to look at what Jesus said there in the book of Acts about the promise of the Father because it is fulfilled ten days later at the day of Pentecost. It's how the Holy Spirit comes and He indwells every true believer. He instructs us and empowers us by His grace and 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 all the wonder of his presence to live for the Lord Jesus and by that same grace to become his faithful followers and faithful disciples and proclaimers of this true gospel to the ends of the earth. Remember I quoted from Matthew 28 earlier that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and earth. But then he says, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and all, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <coughs> God has given us, as believers, his final word on what we as believers in Christ are to be and to do. And in looking at 2 Peter's passage, the Lord's promise is going to be fulfilled in the future just as his father's was here. For one of the things that Peter makes very clear, the Lord the glorious Lord that has ascended at his Father's right hand in glory is coming again to judge the world. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then he asks, what sort of people ought we to be in our holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And then he says this, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. God has given us his final word, and it is found in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some applications for us today. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, the Lord of your life, I'd like to encourage you to turn away from living your own life in your sins and ask God for forgiveness. I ask you to do this today if you've never done it. Jesus Christ is God's final word for salvation. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Secondly, if you haven't taken your life in Christ seriously, or you've become disheartened just like these Hebrew believers, or maybe distracted, and you have found yourself sliding into compromise, or maybe you're, you're troubled and restless in your spirit and, and soul, and there's worries that you're carrying, or maybe the weight of your sin has caused guilt to build up till you can't carry it any longer. I'd like to ask you to consider Jesus' final word for you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. Today could be a new life-changing event for each one of us. Jesus Christ, as the Hebrew writer presents here, is the supreme of all the prophets. He is our great high priest. He is the exalted king at his father's own right hand. He is our creator and heir of all creation and sustains everything by the very word of his power. May you hear his words that reveal the heart of God for his people that are so wonderfully spoken in his high priestly prayer. He says to the Father, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and did love them even as you did love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, in order that they might behold my glory, which you have given me. For you did love me before the foundation of the world. That's what the Lord Jesus wants for us. That's the heart of God in regard to his relationship to his redeemed people. God gives us his final word. It's in his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.